0: Must have been her prom. She was still in school. She was the year. She was two years ahead of me. So I must have been. A, if she was a senior. I would have been a saw sol- I don't know. It's so I was a little younger, and she, yeah, she was still at Hockaday. I went to an all boys school, and Lisa went to the all girls school attached to our school. And um I went out with her sister Debbie for a while, and we had a ton of friends in common. And she was. Um, already like a really great singer-songwriter. And I learned a lot just from watching her in high school. It must be
1: strange, you know, early on as you're kind of trying to make your way, this you know, person that you, you knew and were friends with in high school just becomes like huge all of a sudden.
0: Yeah. And and the way that it happened for her was so unexpected. You know, uh, indie album featured in a in a movie, Reality Bites and then it just kind of catches the cultural zeitgeist and it was one of those songs that it was just everywhere all of a sudden and it was great like i i you know over over the years we didn't stay super close but our orbits would bring us together and every time we came back together i felt like she always had good advice for me she's just always been that that kind of feeling of a big sister i remember one time i was uh, 20 years ago now i was mixing the album the instigator my first major label solo album and she was at the the mixer bob clearmountain she was at bob's house and she's like oh my god you're so lucky you get to work with bob clearmountain i just hope you appreciate it and know that this could go away anytime time like this you may never get to work with bob clearmountain again and it's true that we were on the brink at that moment of the recorded music industry collapsing in on itself. So it had more weight, her advice, than it would have five years earlier
1: it seems like the old 97s have had a, a much more it's it was kind of a slower burn right i mean it's it's been consistent but there wasn't that instantaneous peak in the way that a lot of people had in the 90s
0: so the old 97s never having had like a um, you know a breakthrough moment like lisa did with stay it was in a way frustrating because you know i felt like we were as good as anybody that was having a hit at the time i remember we were label mates with Third Eye Blind. And our, our label kept, not all of them, but a few people at our label kept saying things like, why can't you be more like Third Eye Blind? And I'm like, I don't know.
1: In hindsight, or at the time, did you understand what it meant to be more like Third Eye Blind?
0: Well, there there was another moment when um, Sylvia Rohn, the, the president of Electra, said to me, why do you have to be so sophisticated? And I remember thinking like, you know what, to me, that's a good thing. And I want to be sophisticated. I want to appeal to people on a deeper level. I want songs to work on multiple levels. I want to make records that bear repeated listening. So I think that was the problem. I think we, we could have probably, first of all, we would have probably needed to be named something other than old 97s that that reads country, the word old is bad marketing. So that in itself almost was a, um, you know, like it, it charted our course from the very beginning. But our our idea as a band was, and we said this multiple times, two Electra Records representatives. So nobody could be, you know, we couldn't be accused of, uh, you know, um, bait and switch. We said, we don't really care about having hits. We want to make a catalog. We want to be able to have a career as a band. We care about longevity more than we care about, you know, charting. And that wound up really being the thing that happened weirdly. Like stuff like that. To me, it seems like that almost never comes true. And you, or maybe it's stupid. Maybe, maybe that's what cynical people tell you. Maybe the truth is if you, visualize and then um, externalize your dream to the universe, maybe it does come true. Maybe if you chart a course, you wind up following that course.
1: Certainly there are plenty of examples of bands that have had that, as you say, rich, deep catalog, but there aren't that many instances that you can point to where they had that moment at the top, at that peak, and you know either kept being
0: good or didn't completely implode. Well, yeah, and then the other thing happens where you become tied tethered to a moment in time and so i've got all these friends that are in bands that uh had a hit in the 90s and now when they go out on tour a lot of the time it's on a tour that's called like uh summer of fun the you know 90s summer hits of the 90s and they'll go do a show where most of their show is people waiting to hear a song and then at the end they'll play that song and everybody goes oh great they played that song and and there's nothing inherently wrong with that, and it's very sweet. Nostalgia is important, I think, because it's part of you know the memories that make up our lives. But at the same time, I'm I'm glad that we don't, you know, people use us as nostalgia. But we will play songs from the last, you know, ten years, five years, even, and people will still get excited about those songs and sing along to those songs. So it's as it's as if we never stop being relevant after having peaked out.
1: It's interesting to hear you say that the name, I think the way you put it, was it red country? Because I mean, obviously, you know, there has been a vein of country through a lot of what the old 97s has done in the nineties, especially when everything was really, when genres were really walled off in a way that they aren't necessarily these days. Was that, was being a country band or an alt country band, a liability
0: It's funny, when we started, we didn't know, there was no such thing as alt-country. You know, there was Uncle Tupelo had made albums, and Wilco had just put out one uh, record. And so, this Americana-sounding thing was only referred to in those kind of terms. Oh, it sounds like Americana, it's got elements of country. I used to tell people, it kind of sounds like Tom Petty, right? Um, I remember when uh, Rod Blestine at uh, Cashbox or one of those radio publications. We were—I we, knew him, and we were at an event together. He goes, "Yeah, I just came up with a new name for it. It's called uh, its called alt country." Little did I know when he said that that was going to be like what I did for the rest of my life, and now it's a punchline. So now, when 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 uh, people come over to my house or my kids' friends or whatever. I'll go, oh yeah, this is what this is what alt country will get you. You know, this is the house alt country built. To me, it felt reductive and it felt deceptive because sure, we started off wanting to be like Johnny Cash meets the clash, was sort of the the mission statement in the very beginning. And then like uh we all kind of got obsessed with different things. You know, Murray wanted more Carter family, and I wanted more Bell and Sebastian and then it became that the thing where the band does tug tug of war uh, bouts between each album and then you wind up with whatever the next record is and it's a little more something a little less something and and i love that our band has had the space in it to make room for different sounds but i do also love that when you go back to hitchhike to rome our first album from 29 years ago you hear songs that sound remarkably similar to the record that we most recently made and i mean that's just that's who we are and it people figure out what to call it and are they you got to talk about it somehow and i'm not going to get mad it's interesting that you
1: bring up tom petty because the there's a single on your new solo record that is like such a tom petty song (laughs) yeah it's undeniable i think
0: there's a there's a couple of moments on that record where we looked at each other and we thought this song wants to be Jeff Lynne. This song wants to be Traveling Wilburys. There was um, the the single, the song that's about to drop is called Go Through You. And to me, that feels like the the Lost Traveling Wilburys track. And the song that's the first sort of teaser song the label has already released is a song called Follow You Home, which to me just felt like a folk song. And then as we were building it up, We kind of, you know, like I said, we kind of looked at each other and went, wow, this really feels like it's like a a Tom Petty. Jeff Lynn produced Tom Petty track. And so um, Sam Cohen, the producer, encouraged me. He goes, when you sing this, try and sing it lazy, because that's a very Tom Petty thing. And for me, like even right now talking to you, like I am impatient, like just it's it's not an attractive part of my personality as a musician Or as a human, like I'm always ahead of the beat. When I play music with people, I'm always moving faster than the drummer, than the rhythm section. You mean it literally in that sense? I mean it in every sense. So, like, literally, musically, and also just in my life, I'm always trying to go, go, go. And I'm trying to slow down. And it's like, it's something that I'm trying to learn. And so, when Sam challenged me to slow down on that song, so if you hear the song Follow You Home, you'll hear. Like the, the strumming happens, and I'll sing, you know, one. I felt so broke up. And it's all happening very behind the beat. And it was a revelation for me to be able to sing like that. I thought, I want to live like that. So it's hopefully I'm learning, trying, I'm trying.
1: We spoke backstage at City Winery in New York City years and years ago. The conversation ended up being mostly about 9-11 and ah. your experiences here. And obviously, there's this sort of like new prolonged collective trauma that we've all been dealing with over the past two and a half years, wherein you really don't have an option but to slow down.
0: Yeah. Um, it's funny. I've got a friend visiting me, an old, one of my oldest friends is here. And um, we were just talking about the last couple of years. And it's the kind of thing where we haven't been dealing with it in my house. We're so happy to have moved on. And I've got a kid going off to college in two weeks. And a daughter who's in the chaos of high school herself, and I'm back on on tour, which is crazy. And so it was funny with my friend Walker, who's visiting, to get to just sit down and talk through the last couple of years and process it, because that's the thing I felt like I haven't done much. And you know, we I, when I wrote about nine eleven and 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 the times that I do talk about it with friends, which honestly was not as much as you would think.
1: It's not something that you like necessarily want to bring up in every casual conversation. (laughs) And and there was a period when you had to, and I've been thinking about this a lot too, you know, with regard to talking to friends, to, you know, like seeing like coworkers after a long time, to like going on dates, somebody I'm meeting for the first time. And it's invariable that this conversation is going to come around the pandemic because it's what we've all been collectively dealing with. There are times when you want to have a good time and not wallow in it.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me, I maybe because I'm a performer and or maybe because I've just met so many people, it's always been pretty easy for me once I had processed it to say like with nine eleven, and now even with the pandemic, like say, well, I don't know, just to kind of to move on and to focus on, well, here we are now. And isn't this great? You know, uh, without, you know, without getting into any anything that'll you know, compromise too much of my wife, Erica's privacy. You know, it, it was a lot harder for her. She's a civilian. And with the 9 11 thing, when, when someone brings it up, our experience was pretty traumatic. We fled. We were rendered homeless. We, we, you know, we saw, we saw dead people. It's, it wasn't, it was bad. It was really bad. And so for, um, for her, when it comes up, it tends to be a bit more of a stop down. Like if somebody if somebody brings up nine eleven even now, I always think like, no, no, no. Cause it, it it's not like it's gonna mess up the rest of her night, but it does mean that we're gonna be It's not a happy memory. <laughs> Obviously you've kept busy and you know, you, you have
1: the solo record coming out. You there was an old ninety seven album that came out like fairly early on in the pandemic. You know, you've got these kids' books that you're working on again by normal people's standards. You've been pretty busy, but invariably there's a sense in which you have to slow down during all of this.
0: It was great, too. I mean, that's something that keeps coming up with me and my friends, but I have been a touring musician since really since like, I don't know, 22 years old. So almost three decades of pretty nonstop touring. Um, without much of a break. When my kids were really little, I I tried to tap the brakes and stay home a little more to help with them in the hardest, what I thought would have been the hardest years, although it's always hard as they get older. It's just different problems. Mm-hmm. To be able to be home, that was the biggest thing with my two kids during what wound up being very formative and also very difficult years for them, was a giant blessing and a godsend. And I love my kids and the fact that I was home made me realize how difficult my being gone had been on them. And so it was incredible. And now my son will go off to college, and my daughter will have to endure a couple of years of me being gone again. But there's not much choice. I, I do enjoy doing shows online. I'm going to continue to do them. But it doesn't really replace you know, the life that, that of a touring musician.
1: As you say, you have to be gone for a chunk of time in order to really do your job. But when you say you didn't realize how hard it had been on them, was that from like subsequent conversations of being home? Or was it just sort of realizing how different things were when you were home?
0: It were both. But but yeah, they but they both opened up. My son, especially, because he's a little older. And you know, he just, he realized how, you know, what it costs the family of uh, someone who travels a lot like that. And it's, it's hard. And we live out in the country, too. I wonder if it would be different if we lived in Manhattan or something where the hustle and bustle of life created that sort of level of noise where my not being around didn't create such a void. You know, the the a musician coming and going, there's a reason that my profession leads to so much substance abuse. It leads so often to divorce. There, you know, it's just, it's hard because... I'm gone and it looks like I'm having a blast you know and, and that may or may not be true I really do love my job but it is also a job and it's hard traveling and and schlepping and 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 being constantly in motion and away from your own bed and away from your family and loved ones but it's it's hard it and I just boy I, I missed them a lot and to be able to be around for those two years was Incredible.
1: I'm sure that there are times when it has been a strain on those personal relationships, whether it's your marriage or friendships or anything else. But it seems, again, from my vantage point, it seems like you've managed to keep things together pretty well. Yeah. I don't want to say is there a secret, but like, you know, how have you pulled through? Man, it's funny. On my Wheels Off podcast, I, I the minute after I like named all the things you were working on, I was like, oh yeah. And also, he does a podcast on top
0: of that. Oh yeah, but but that doesn't feel like work to me. It, it it really it's a conversation that I really love having, but it always comes back to that, like the when you run up against the sort of the problems that aren't the obvious problems, the the problems that aren't external uh, logistical type problems, the internal stuff. Like I always ask people for what's your secret. Uh, for me, I think the main thing is shine a light on it. Like don't when things are hard it's way better to get through those hard times if you look at them rather than ignore them like if if your marriage is struggling go to therapy you know go to go to couples counseling if you are having a beef with somebody talk to them you know like a bandmate for instance just as a but it's like it's a lot better to address it as soon as you realize it's a problem address it, then go walk right up to it and try and open your heart and hear them. God, one thing that did I a couple of years ago, I heard somebody say it, and it has been a giant transformative uh, little piece of advice. It's this when somebody says something to you that bothers you or hurts you or that you that you think your immediate reaction is to think that there's you can't believe how wrong this person is to think, what if they're right? You know, that what if their criticism has some truth to it? And it's been really transformative to, to me, because it sort of opens up a conversation, not just with them, but within myself of like, what, what ownership could I take to this situation right now? And that's That's been pretty
1: great. It seems obvious in hindsight, but that that I've really learned over the years is is also trying to understand what they've been through that day or
0: week or, early, you
1: know, all all the things that they're carrying and all the things that led them to that
0: moment. I asked my kids uh, a, a couple of years ago to sit down and watch with me. Someone had made an animated version, and I recommend it to anyone, especially a parent, I guess, but anyone of... David Foster Wallace's commencement address at Kenyon University. Uh, it's, it's called What is Water? I think is, is, is how you can find it. Search that. It's so beautiful. It's so heartbreakingly beautiful. And that's the gist of it. It's the person, um, behind you that's, um, riding your ass on the freeway or the person that's in front of you going too slow at the, st- st- supermarket like you don't know you don't know what they're going through and it's just the best advice you can also still acknowledge that there
1: are bad people in the <laughs> world who are actively doing bad things i could be wrong but i do feel that as important as empathy is that that perhaps it does have its
0: limits sure yeah and most of us never test those limits you know most of us are too quick to uh, just assume that the other person really is an idiot or a jerk or whatever but yeah, for sure. There's, there's bad people out there, <laughs> sadly.
1: <laughs> These conversations that you're having, you're able to have this, this openness that you have this mindfulness that you have with the relationships in your life. Again, whether it's your, your bands or, or your family, that's not something that comes naturally. I mean, that's not something that when you're, you know, in your early twenties, just starting this band that you're necessarily able to tap into.
0: Oh my God. No. And, and, When I was young, and I don't know if this is universal, but when I was young, oh my God, I loved the sound of my own voice, and I loved to tell everybody what to do, and I can't even believe that my bandmates put up with it as long as they did. And they explained to me in kind and unkind terms over the years that they did not need me telling them what to do, but I was pretty sure they did. And, um, it boy, it just took me a long time to just learn to listen, to learn to sit back and let it, let the game come to me, just to let it happen. And even if that means letting people make mistakes. And that's something that's been really useful as a parent as well. Let them make mistakes. You know, it's, that's how they're going to learn.
1: You were describing the process of producing this, this album. I think Sam Cohen, right? You were working with. And it sounds like a lot of the process for you was really giving up control, you know, taking your songs to him and then just letting him take them in directions that you wouldn't necessarily have gone in without him. and there's a difference
0: between giving up control and being open to another person and when I made um when I made the believer with George Draculius years ago, he's incredible talk, speaking of Tom Petty. He worked on a bunch of the really great Tom Petty stuff, Wildflowers, etc. Draculius is a brilliant guy. He's incredibly uh, opinionated and ornery and strong-willed and and pushy. But that, that's sort of that's who he is. That's what he does. That's how he makes records. So with that record, I was definitely getting bossed around, which sounds it sounds bad, but I mean that's sort of the job of a producer of that ilk. He wouldn't let me play guitar on my own record. And I remember just feeling it. It felt bad. I felt like, like, what are you, what are you doing? Why are you hamstringing me like this on this new record with Sam? And it wound up being great. And he and I are still friends. And I love that the way that record turned out, but it was, it was difficult. Like I really had to let someone take control and I had to just be, you know, one of the paints in their, their box of paints, but with Sam. He and I came into it uh, early on with this th- we made a conscious decision that we would be collaborators, like the ultimate kind of <laughs> collaborators, and uh, the the model that we wanted to use, and the, the, sonically, it didn't end up sounding like these records, but the the Bowie Eno collaborations of the Berlin Years, the Berlin Trilogy, yeah. Yeah, so we, we really I really loved the idea that I would come in with song starters, pieces of songs. I would let him, because I respect Sam as much as anybody I've ever worked with, he's so brilliant, the the way he approaches music as architecture, the way that he creates on the fly these giant soundscapes. So I wanted to utilize him, and I wanted to let him use me for what I'm good at, which is, like, I can write lyrics right now. Like, I will sit down, I will feel what you're making, and I would build a, a word picture, and I can and I can help you with melodies. And the two of us together made this thing happen so fast. Sam plays every instrument, including the acoustic guitar. So the idea that I'm not playing any acoustic guitar on my album this time around wasn't someone pointing at me and saying, "You look like you're going to break it every time you touch it. Don't you stay off the acoustic," which is what Draculia said, or Sam saying. Let me do the music. I'll do that, and then you, uh, you and I can write the songs, and you sing them, and we can make make up these melodies together, and you can make the words, and and it just felt like it felt like two people melding the best parts of you know their own uh, skill set to make this one larger entity, and that's what made the record, and that felt incredible. That's what felt like magic to me.
1: You have to let people make mistakes and you have to accept that these ideas as they're forming your head are like regardless of the situation are not going to be the same you know when you put them down on paper when you you put them down on record but was handing off that level of the creative process
0: scary or difficult yeah it it was because you don't know what you're going to get and we were working pretty quickly you know the even the just the economics of the way this kind of record is done you know it's he he, nobody's making a ton of money ato is a good label ato's got some money and they were they were willing to pay but it wasn't like the believer that album cost over three hundred thousand dollars to make that's insane and 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 that was the the very end of that business model and i you can see just in that one fact alone you can see why the business model was untenable right so the believer a record made for you know whatever a tenth of that, was uh, a record we, we ha- by necessity, had to make kind of quickly. And we also wanted to make it quickly because we didn't want to agonize over every decision, because we knew that if we um, made these songs, these living things that, it, in the morning, we have an, uh, just an idea of something that might be a song. maybe it's a, Maybe it's one verse. Maybe it's one chorus. Maybe it's just a tiny set of lyrics. We would um, finish that afternoon with the rough mix of a song finished that song now exists. It's in the world. And so, but as you're doing that, it's really easy to get scared because, uh, you don't know. There was one song called following, uh, following the white tops. Or no, just called the white tops, where I had read an article about a circus, uh, life in a circus around the turn of the last century. And people would go follow the White Tops. It would be like joining the circus. And there, and in the song, I wanted there to be a story where a circus performer, a trapeze artist, is flying through the air. He's um, realizing he's going to miss the fingers, the outstretched fingers of the catcher. He will be falling to where a safety net should catch him. But he's also realizing in that moment that because he had gone out the night before with the, the carnies whose job it was to tie the safety net properly, they hadn't tied it properly. Mm-hmm. He was falling to his death, and he was looking over, and he was seeing the woman from a woman that he was in love with, who was uh, in the freak show, and she was in love with someone else. So it was this, like a whole world in a moment, was the idea, and it was really intricate. And the the lyric was really intricate, and the the music that Sam and I were coming up with was strange. Like, so as you're going, it's really easy to tell yourself the story that it's too much. It's, it's not going to work. It's going to be just this hot mess when it's done and nobody's going to want it. It's not going to make the record. You're going to, you're like, oh, now we're wasting a day. So like, so as you're going, it's, it's really easy to get caught up in the negative voices in your head. So you have to really just trust in the other person and trust in the process and, And that song wound up being one of my favorite songs in the album. By the time it was finished that afternoon, we played it back. I cried literal tears listening to it because, because the, the, the journey just throughout the six or seven hours leading up to that moment of it being finished was so hard and fraught. And then, and the story was so alive when it was done. Like I really, I really felt like I was in the mind of this, the narrator and whatever, it was a uh, proof of concept. Like if we had ever needed it to, to know that this thing that we could do, the two of us making music like that would work. It was that moment. It was so beautiful.
1: It's interesting to hear you describe the effectively like the day or the six hours that you were doing that as being that intense, because I mean, that's an incredibly truncated timeline, you know, versus I assume what it usually takes you to write a song and. And obviously, if you're working on a piece of music for, you know, weeks or months, or in some cases, even years, it's a lot more heartbreaking if it fails, but you were able to just sort of jam all of that, that entire like roller coaster of emotions into a six hour period.
0: Yeah. And it's, and it was a while ago now, honestly, it's been, this record's been in the can uh, for over a year and I'm kind of obsessed with this record. I think it's, it's, I, I know it's some of my best work. My kids are obsessed with this record. They, um they're like, if people hear it, they're going to freak out about this record. They're like, you could, you could wind up with a, a younger audience finding you because of this record. And the funny thing is, you might think that my kids say this about everything I do. They do not. <laughs> I don't know your kids,
1: obviously, at all. I, you know, I've talked to you twice now, but I just assume that most people's kids, if not necessarily hate what they do, like want to be as far away from it as possible.
0: Oh, my God. And especially, you know, 2022 kids who love, you know, Travis Scott and Frank Ocean and their dad's an old country legend. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, dad, you know what legend means? It means old. So it's not like a good thing. You know, they're, they love to roast me. And they, by the way, when I just now called myself a legend, that was, I was being ironic. I don't think
1: anybody would like m- mistake that for false modesty.
0: Okay, thanks. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they, uh, they love to roast me. And, and I, I think they appreciate what I do, but it's definitely not something they're going to be jazzed about or listen to.
1: I'm always curious about musicians with kids. And when you talk about affording them the opportunity to make mistakes, that, I always wonder, you know, if they do show some sort of interest in music, whether you go out of your way to foster that or kind of dissuade them, because like you know, firsthand, how difficult of a life that can be.
0: Yeah. The good thing is that I know they would only do music if they had no other choice but to do music. That's, that's Mm -hmm. why people do music anymore, I think. I don't, I don't think there was once the idea of a brass ring. Right, like the the music industry was gonna was handing out million dollar checks for a while there, and even that, it turns out that was, uh, you know, that was fraudulent. I think to a certain extent the idea of that still
1: exists, but the reality you get hit with the reality of it a lot quicker if you go down that road.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so my kids, they um, they love music. They especially love the things that they love. Right. That's that's how it works. I have been. Right there, ready to give them guitar lessons, ready to buy them whatever instruments they wanted. And I have bought them drum sets and guitars. And so far, I think I take up a lot of oxygen. I think that's part of it. I always wonder how, like, shooter, how did shooter Jennings wind up doing music when his dad was Waylon? How do people wind up? How does that even work? And ma- maybe if I had done it differently. Maybe if I had pushed them, maybe if I had incentivized it when they were younger, but I didn't want them to do music unless they really wanted to do it. And so honestly, I just, I'm trying not to dissuade them and not to seem overly eager if they ever show a hint of interest in it. I'm guessing you've crossed paths with
1: Jacob Dylan more than once. And that, you know, that's always an interesting one because they've had success there, but That's a case where there are doors that are open for you that aren't
0: open for most people, but there's no way that you're escaping that shadow. I mean, the the list is pretty long, honestly. Uh, You know, Teddy Teddy Thompson, um, you know, Sting's kid, Paul Simon's son. The there's a lot of yeah, offspring of really super famous, successful, and incredible musicians. Jacob, I think he's he came out of his dad's shadow, obviously. He just seems so laid back. Like to me, my, when I've interacted with him, he just, he is happy to be himself and he's happy to have the success he's had, but he doesn't, he's not freaking out about it. He's not trying to prove that's, I think the danger is when you have to prove that you aren't your parents child, like you're, you're your own. I don't know. It's, it seems really hard to me. Like, but, but that's not just even with music. I, I, you know, Children of writers, children of actors, children of the the family business. It's hard to go into if your parent. I know a chef uh, whose whose dad opened up this incredible barbecue place, and they've had to sort of live up to the. You know, it's it's we all have to live up to or live down the whatever our parents foisted upon us. It's that's that's why the psychiatrists stay in business.
1: What's interesting though is you know looking at again, the, the, these myriad things that you do, both inside and outside of music, is that you don't seem like somebody, even at this point in your career, somebody who's been doing this for a long time that is scared to try not just new things musically, as we discussed before, but to start a podcast or to write a kid's book.
0: Yeah, I I, um, I have to keep hustling. I have to keep swimming like a shark or else I'll perish. I I, I just love it. You mean that financially or creatively? In a way, both. Honestly, that that's uh, that's another of the, you know, maybe I'm just looking for silver linings. But never having had any real breakthrough success, one of the one of the really great things about that is it keeps me driven. It keeps me hungry. You know, I I, I have to keep working to feed my kids and pay my mortgage. But I kind of like that. I kind of like that. I have never been offered the, you know, the what must be an incredible temptation to just stop. Like, that's never been an option. I can't just stop and retire and go just live off, you know, sit on a pile of money. But I I love what I do and I love working and coming up with new ideas to do different things is, you know, I I just want to keep going. I want to keep doing it as long as I can. There's other things I haven't done. I've never written a novel. I've never... I've never really acted. I I um I've gotten to do a little bit of that lately. It's that it hasn't come out yet and I'm not allowed to talk about it beyond that, but that's so super fun. I I can see why people enjoy acting. It's so like all this stuff it's just fun. It's it's part of being alive, right?
1: Obviously, you could give me a much longer list of things that you haven't done, but it sounds like you're singling those things out because those are things that you potentially do want to do.
0: Yeah, of course. I, my My dream of writing a novel started when I was, I don't know, six years old, and and has never been. That itch has never been scratched, but that's hanging out there for sure. You described. A
1: white cap song, and I thought at very least, like you're effectively jamming a short story into a song.
0: And I've written some short stories, and I don't think I'm great at it. I'm, you can't be great at anything until you do it and do it. Is that a completely different what part of your brain when it comes to writing versus songwriting? You know what's funny? It feels completely different when you start doing it, but as you get into it, you realize, oh, well. It's actually, it's similar muscles, but it's on a different scale, right? So if I, if I write a song, I can sit down and in a half an hour, I've, maybe I've written a song on an acoustic guitar. It wasn't there. Now it's there. So for a short story, as I'm going, it's, it's a similar thing. Like I'm trying to figure out the, the order of the words and then what are the, what's the next word? What notes am I going to hit? Which, which obviously in a short story, that's, um, um, metaphorical, but you are hitting notes, you're hitting like e- emotional notes. And a- so as I've, as I've ch- worked on longer form prose and longer form fiction and short stories, I've realized that there, there is some overlap, some of the credits that I've accrued by writing Hundreds or thousands of songs will apply. They'll, you can transfer schools and yeah, exactly. maintain
1: some of that. It's so funny when when you talk about the Berlin trilogy. The first thing that like jumps to my mind are, are the oblique strategy cards, either literally or metaphorically. Are is is that something that has played a role in the way you make music?
0: So I've never had a set of oblique strategy cards. I've seen them at recording studios and I've flipped through them, but I've never actively used them. But I really love the idea of of when you run into uh, a brick wall with something you're working on, ch- change it, you know, go like Bob Dylan had a great quote about when he's writing a song and he runs up uh, and, and he any, um, and it peters out. He'll, if he's working on guitar, he'll switch to piano. I mean, he did have the luxury of being able to play both of those <laughs> instruments. Yeah, and probably Endless Time in the studio and all yeah. the other things that come
1: with being Bob Dylan.
0: Yeah. So, um, you know, Dan Wilson, uh, formerly of Semi Sonic, now he's like one of the great sort of co-writers. Yeah, and he has he's been on the show. Oh, great. So, yeah, Dan's incredible. And he's so thoughtful. And the way he thinks about stuff is so useful. And he has a set of cards Um that are like the oblique strategy cards which he promised to send me and I still never got them. But um you know what now that you bring that up I think I need I need to have those right here in my office at home.
1: The connection only dawned on me recently. I have a friend who's really into tarot and you know the thing I don't know if you know the tarot at all but the the thing that people will tell you is that it's not fortune telling. It took me a while to sort of wrap my brain around what that meant and why that was important but I think it's similar to the oblique strategy cards in that it is providing you sort of some kind of prompt and then you sort of trying to mold your brain around it
0: yeah I mean we all know the answer right we know what are we grappling with what what is our heart telling us like these are the the questions and the answers that we think are coming to us externally they're all just they're all being drawn out. You know, when you have a, a when you have an epiphany listening to a song, it's not like the song is carrying that epiphany around and then bestowing it on you. The song is eliciting that. It's drawing it. It's finding it inside of you and pulling it out.
1: It seems right on the face of it. There are certainly points when it feels like, you know, that when we don't know the answers or the questions.
0: I guess it's different to have
1: the answer in you and to know the answer.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I'm a, b- a big believer in meditation. Um, I'm a I'm a I'm a huge believer in instinct and the power of instinct and I think I think if artists have any kind of a superpower that isn't you know utilized as much or maybe in the wheel in the in the arsenal of non-artists it's that it's that we're constantly having to trust our instincts to listen to them follow them uh, not second guess them because you just have to keep moving right what's the next word what's the next note what's the next am I gonna where do I stop where does it move to the next section like all it is is questions all it is is blank pages waiting to be filled and so you know we're just grabbing things and and throwing them down and and we have to trust that those things you know are the can be made turned into something beautiful and and I certainly believe that for you though is it is it spiritual or is it scientific? One of my quotes on my senior page was um, from a, a, a book of, um, there's a magical realist writer, um, Miguel de Unamuno, a Mexican writer. And he, the, the line was, uh, never study medicine, she told Augusto. It's best not to know what goes on inside. So for me, science is spirituality. How does, how does a flower go from being a seed to being a poem you know like so you could explain that vis-a-vis photosynthesis and nutrient you know delivery and etc or you could or you could write a song you know or you could make a poem and for me like the like there's no real difference between science and spirituality because i don't really want to know what they call science (laughs) like like i'll take the flower thank you that's great. That's all I need.
1: <laughs> I consider myself a, a pragmatist generally and like certainly as I, I write for a living and you know, obviously I do some podcasting too, but I tend to think of things very verbally. I tend to think that there's nothing that I wouldn't you know, given given sort of the proper the long enough timeline that you wouldn't be able to express in text, but the thing I've had to figure out and I think part of the reason why I didn't immediately take to poetry and why it took me a long time to sort of take to, you know, like impressionistic paintings is at a certain point, you realize that there just aren't words
0: for some things. Yeah, that's scary. That's, that's, um, that's the tricky part. And I think it's, I think there's a nobility in knowing that and continuing the search right? I think, I think, yeah, to me, there's, there's, there's something noble about knowing that there are no answers. There's no why, but I'm just going to keep asking. I'm going to keep trying. I'm going to keep finding and trying things on. And I think there's, a that's kind of beautiful. I think that's right. I, I think it's, well, I think it's a combination, right? I think, I think it's like continuing to believe that, that
1: you will be able to explain these things, but also realizing that there are, because of, I don't know if it's just the way we're wired, but that, that there are shortcuts and that, metaphor and that's that symbolism in poetry or in paintings are are those shortcuts to understanding deeper ideas
0: yeah i mean thank god for for analogs right because it, it, it lets us understand the things that we don't that we've never experienced that we that we may never experience and yeah i i um but also there's the things that you can't um give voice to I think you can build up enough, enough details. You can build up enough, uh, sign, signs to point from different directions that you can, oh my God, this is tough, where you can find it. Where you can, there's a place, there's a, there's a black hole in the middle of where I've put all these signs. And if you just read all these, follow all these t- directions if you yeah you can find yourself in the middle i can't tell you what's there but that's what i'm talking about that's the beautiful thing
1: defining negative space sure with the things that are around it obviously you are a very verbal person you know you, you're a social person you have you have a podcast you've learned to break some of these complex ideas down into song what's the process like of writing a children's book because that is talk about a, a, a having to use really sparse language to sort of tackle some really big ideas.
0: Yeah, it's a it's a whole different thing. But it's it's funny sometimes. Sometimes I feel like my job is people pleasing. Like I'm trying to I'm trying to give people like good feelings while they drink beers in uh, nightclubs, or you know, when I was writing the first batch of kids' poems for the first kids' book, which was all standalone poems, I was trying to. Make my kids want to stay on the phone with me while I was on tour they were little back then, and so I would trick them I'd say, okay, I wrote another poem today and I'm going to need you guys to help me I need to read it to you and you need to tell me what's good about it what's bad about it we can maybe you can help me workshop it a little bit and they'd be like oh they would relish the the opportunity to like you know to critique something that I had done and um you know and so it's it's boy in in my more cynical moments I think that what I do is a lot of manipulation, a lot of people pleasing, a lot of sleight of hand and trickery, but it, it really comes from a place of love. And it's, it's driven by, um, trying to find connections between people, trying to find meaning in uh, a world that can be kind of brutal sometimes. So, like in this little kid, in the second kids book, the initial impulse was, well, People really like that first kids book. I should write another kids book. And then it was like, oh, but what the hell am I going to write about? And I started thinking about how much I love my siblings. And then I thought about how when I was little, I thought I hated them at times. And that is a, that's a funny push pull. And I thought that it would offer like a really beautiful opportunity for a really beautiful moment, but I didn't know what that moment would be. And so the only way I could figure it out was by writing you know, this, this really intricate rhyme scheme on and on page after page, you know, people have names and my name is James. I'm a regular 10 year old kid. I always thought I was nice, but I'm not, I feel bad about this thing that I did. So like right off the bat, this kid is talking about his feelings. And I thought, okay, well, there's something in that and we're going to plumb this kid's feelings. And so page after page, some literal plumbing involved. And then when I got to the end, I didn't know how it was going to end. When I get to the end, and this is a spoiler alert, but it's a kids' book, so deal with it, people.
1: They, they have not listened fifty minutes <laughs> into this podcast,
0: <laughs> and, and not really, Yeah. So, at the end of the book, I, as I was writing it, I get to the point where I knew he was going to decide to keep his little brother and not give in to the temptation to trade him in to the magical baby changing station for guitars or a chemistry set or whatever. He was going to keep his his baby brother, and so. But but I got to this line at the end where they're walking out of the of the restroom at the pizza place. He's going to go back to his parents' table, having decided to keep his brother. And it dawned on me that his brother was going to say his very first word and that his first word was going to be his big brother's name. And when I wrote that, it was similar to the moment where I listened back for the first time to Following the White Tops, where, I re- where this thing that I ostensibly had created came at me like I was its first audience and it made me cry. Like I'm having a moment where I'm like, Oh my God, who did this? This is great. I'm this is like blowing my mind. I'm like having a real emotional response to this thing that theoretically I had just created and should have already been immune to because I was its creator. It's that's that to me feels like magic. There are moments at least where we do have to trade our
1: loved ones for guitars. It's just a necessary <laughs> part of life, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's true. I, I'm going to be going back on tour mid-September, trading them in once again. Sorry, guys.